Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join our special guest as he teaches from the Word of God. And uh, when I first started, I had two wonderful youth in my program. One was named Tim Carey, and the other one's named Jennifer Granger. And uh, Tim was kind of a quiet guy, but he loved Jesus. In fact, Tim was one of these people that he has never wavered in his faith. He has a praying mama. You could go to Tim's house on Friday night, and they would be pouring their heart out to the Lord praying. Uh, well, we had Bible studies at my house on Tuesday nights. He'd be over at my house just soaking in the Word of God. If you ever, ever wanted to watch a young man grow in the Lord and never miss a beat, that's Tim Carey. In fact, Tim is so bold in his faith that as a junior in high school, he stood up on the table in the lunchroom at Wakala High and preached the gospel. Tim has never wavered. Makes me a proud pastor. And so this morning, I want to introduce to you Tim Carey, who is the assistant pastor at St. Giles Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. River of Life, would you give a warm welcome to Tim Carey? Let me pray with you. Yeah, please do. Father, I can't say thank you enough for this young man. I pray right now that you will just pour out your spirit in and through him. And Lord, I ask that we would truly be changed today. I pray, Lord, that this service will not be forgotten for many years to come because of the power that will come for this man's words and from this man's life. So, Lord, we open up our hearts today to hear from you to receive from you, and at the same time, empty ourselves out to you. That's right. So Holy Spirit, meet us where we're at and take us to the throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Chuck. Love you, man. Love you, too. All right. It is certainly an honor to be here. And after watching all that that happened up here, I could almost just stop. I mean, that is the gospel right there. Like if you're wondering what Christianity is about, what this whole following Jesus thing is, you just saw it on full display. Amen. Yeah, so it is awesome. Blackie, I don't know where he is, but I praise God for his ministry. Um, so I'm standing here today, and I really feel quite humbled and honored to stand here in this place, a place that the Word of God has faithfully been preached for years. I can still hear some of those sermons that were preached. I can hear the Sunday school lessons that were taught. In my mind's eye, I can picture... Your lives, many of you, as you walked out the Christian faith and you showed me as just a young guy, like what it meant to follow Christ. And so today, like even as I sit back and I reflect on my life and I sit and prepare for messages like this, I begin to chuckle at times because I can hear you. I can hear Pastor Henry and Pastor Chuck. I can hear Dallas Gray, Derek Gray, Scooter. Betty Fusco, and the list could go on. I could hear you in my head. And I'm like, I know where that comes from. It comes from this place right here. 
So there was a study done years ago uh, by a group of researchers, and they were just really curious why, what made churches grow young. And so they did a nation, nationwide survey, and they looked at all kinds of churches from all kinds of backgrounds. And what came back to them was that churches that grew young, that is that churches that attracted young people were churches that understood the keys of ministry that they had and were willing to give those keys up. They called this keychain leadership. And so they said the churches that grew young understood keychain leadership. And here at this church, I was at the ground level of a lot of stuff. I was even given the first key to this building. I think there was 12 of them. And I was here and I was given that key. I was rummaging through my mom's stuff uh, last night. Like, is, is that still around somewhere? Can I find it? I couldn't find it, but I can still picture it in my head. And it's really that you, the church, has gave me the keys to ministry at such a young age. And I just want to say thank you. I'm really, really grateful for it. All right. So coming out of Thanksgiving, I thought it might be fitting for us to talk a little bit about eating. And so knowing many of you, I know you like food. And so I thought that this would just be a really good thing for us to jump into. And when we take and we step back and we look at the gospel of Luke, what we will find is that the gospel is filled with times where Jesus is just eating. And so there, I want to first, though, just as a point of introduction, kind of introduce this whole idea of Jesus eating. And it comes with this accusation against Jesus that Jesus is called to be someone who eats with sinners and tax collectors. Now, this was not just a descriptor of the way that he lived and practiced his life, but this was actually a not so subtle jab at Jesus. They were saying, Jesus, you hang out with losers, so you must be a loser as well. And you know what? It didn't really bother Jesus at all. He just continued to do it. He continued to hang out with the despised and the forgotten of this world. And he loved it and he enjoyed it. So as we look at the gospel of Luke, what we find is we find meal after meal with, that Jesus has with different people. Uh, the very first meal that we see in Luke is a meal that he has with Levi. So Levi was one of those scum of the earth kind of guys he was a tax collector and Jesus called him and said, Levi, follow me. And Levi followed him. Levi's life was so changed that he called all of his buddies together and he had a big party and Jesus sat and ate with them. And you know, like the scum of the earth, like his friends are also like him. And, but Jesus was right there in the middle of it, just having a blast. There was another meal that Jesus had that was just literally just this impromptu meal. He wasn't planning it at all, but it was out on the countryside and he was out teaching and the people were just loving it. They were eating up every word. And then there began to this little rumbling in their tummies and Jesus knew, oh no, we're far out. And uh, there's not a restaurant nearby. There's no Myra jeans to go to. So what we need to do is... I. What do we have? So Jesus, they bring Jesus some fish and they bring him some loaves of bread. And there on a hillside, Jesus has a meal with 5,000 people. Imagine that for Thanksgiving. And then there's the meal that Jesus has with Mary and Martha. There's these meals that he has with these Pharisees. And then there's a meal that he has with his disciples. 
right before he dies. And then when he raises to life again, you know what Jesus does? He tracks down his disciples. And what does he do? He eats with them. He has a meal with them. See, meals are this very intimate thing. Like mealtime is a time to sit across from someone, to slow down for a little bit, and to interact with them just some. So today, our passage comes from Luke 7. And I want to talk about one of those meals that Jesus had. And I want, before we kind of jump into this, I want you to imagine what it would be like to have Jesus over to your house for dinner. Like, what would you make him? What would you serve Jesus? And probably, this is probably the bigger question in my mind. Like, who do you put Jesus next to? Like, do you put him next to like the annoying nephew that's like always spitting peas? Like, where does Jesus go? it's It's a good question. And so as we walk through this story, what I would like to invite you to do is I'd like you to just kind of sit back as an observer and just kind of see what the story, how the story unfolds and just kind of look at it. But I don't want you just to remain in that position of observing. But what I would also like to challenge you to do is I'd like to challenge you and invite you to put yourself into the story, like insert yourself there and say, okay, what role would I play? And now here's probably the, really the challenging thing is it's not just what role would you like to play or which role do you think you would prefer to play? But the really challenging and probably brave question is what role would I actually play? Like which character would I actually be in this whole story? All right. So the story begins Luke seven thirty six. Says one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet. And anointed them with the ointment. So the story begins with an invitation. A Pharisee asked Jesus to come to eat at his house. Now the Pharisee was always trying to discredit Jesus. That's just what Pharisees did. They were always looking for a way to take Jesus out. So from the very beginning, the invitation to eat at a Pharisee's house was straight up specific. I mean, subject. Uh, It was suspicious. It was a suspicious invitation. But Jesus goes anyways. He goes and eats at this man's house, knowing that this man, his motives were suspect, knowing that this man may, may, may look down on him, may persecute him. Jesus shows up nonetheless. So this Pharisee, we find out later as we read in the passage, is named Simon. And he is just hosting Jesus for a meal. He's just having Jesus over along with a whole group of other people. And so even today in the Middle East, there's a strong tradition of hosting. It's just part of their custom. So this past summer, Jennifer and I, we had this amazing opportunity to lead a group of youth up to 
the only Muslim-majority city in America. And while we were up there, we sent our youth throughout the city with the whole intention of just finding opportunities to share the gospel. And so our youth, they kind of fanned out and they went about. And when we did, did that, what we found is we found a very gracious and hospitable group of people. They shared meals with us. They gave of their time. They gave of their resources to us. One guy, just like random guy I met, took me out to dinner, uh, treated me to his favorite meal. Uh, one of our groups, this is a really cool story. One of our groups, they, they went to the door. We were just, at some points, we were just knocking door to door. And we went to a, went to a house, knocked on it, said, hey, we'd just like to, to pray with you. And this Muslim family invited them in. And this, this teenage girl, 16 years old, in this home over coffee and, and tea and cookies, she got to share the gospel with this family. It was an amazing thing. And that family, even to this day, is still exploring, like, who is this Jesus that I heard about? Who is, what is this thing, this Bible that I heard them talk about? See, the roots of hospitality run deep in this tradition. And so it was with Jesus, Jesus's day, there was this strong tradition of hosting. And there were some things that were expected of those who were hosting. If you were having guests at your house, there were some things that you were supposed to do. One was, is you needed to provide a basin at least for them to wash their feet with. Remember, they walked around with sandals, dirty ground. And so if someone was coming over to your house, you're to provide a basin, some water for them to wash their feet with. Also, it was customary that you would also provide some oil and that you would, you would provide some oil for them to soothe their feet, anoint their feet with oil. And then you would also, when they came into your house, you would greet them with a kiss So here we have our story then. We have the story of Simon the Pharisee. He's hosting Jesus. And then we also have the story of this woman who is named a sinner, a woman of the city. And so what I want us to pause for a second is on the surface, it looks like there's just one host. It looks like it's just Simon and he's the one that's throwing the party. But what I want to submit to you today and what I want you to consider for just a moment is that there's actually another host here, that there's another person in the mix. And it's this woman, this sinner. So we have one who has, who, who is Pharisee. He has ulterior motives. He has some angle that he's trying to work. And then we also have over here, we have this woman who sees her savior and he's responding out of love and out of some type of response to the grace that she has received from him. So what I want us to do first is look at Simon the Pharisee who invited Jesus over for a meal, but never welcomed him into his home. You can look at the story. There's no mention of those, those customary greetings. There's no foot bath. There's no oil. There's no kiss for Jesus. It seems that Simon withheld these customary greetings. He held them back intentionally. 
On the other hand, the woman of the city steps in and welcomes Jesus in a way that the Pharisee would never do. She goes to Jesus' feet and begins to weep at them. Her tears streak down his well-worn, dirty feet. Her tears make their way through his rugged toes. It is her tears, not a basin of water that provide the cleansing of his feet. She takes her hair and she wipes them clean. She places his feet in her hand and she takes the oil and she rubs it over it. So here's the scene, if you can imagine it with me. It probably happened somewhere out in a courtyard in the house. So there's a house and then there's probably a courtyard outside of the house. And that's where the party is going on. Jesus comes and he arrives and there's a woman standing across the street looking onward and she's watching all this unfold. She sees as Jesus comes to the house, no one greets him, no one says hi. He makes his way to a table and he sits down. The woman of the city, the sinner, she knows what's happening right now. She knows that Simon had just snubbed Jesus and she's offended for Jesus. She's like, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way you treat a guest. Where's the basin? Where's the kiss? Where's the oil? And she stands back and she says, what am I going to do? I don't know. I'm offended. And then before she knows it, she's running across the street. And before she knows it, she's falling down at Jesus' feet. These are not her people. They did not like her kind at all. But she knew that Jesus had to be greeted. She knew that Jesus needed to be hosted. See, what we're talking about right now is we're talking about hosting Jesus. And really, there's two kinds of hosts right here. One who wants to manage Jesus. One who wants to take some of Jesus, like some of the things that he liked, said, some of the things that he did, and just kind of like work them into his system. And then there's another one that's just simply responding to the extravagant grace and love and mercy of her Savior. And she's just falling down at it. See, the woman, she hosts Jesus not simply as a house guest, but she hosts Jesus as her Savior. And there's a difference here. Of the two, Simon the Pharisee was a poor host to a guest. And that's all that he was to Simon. While the woman was an exceptional host to her Savior. I'd like to point out that the way that we host, or should I say honor Jesus, is telling of who Jesus is to us. Is he merely a guest? One that is not even worthy of the customary greetings of our time. Or is he our savior? Who is worthy of it all? River of life. How do you host Jesus?
Let's pick up in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. All right, did you catch catch what just happened here? Simon, with a smug look, on his face, said to himself, does he know who is touching him? If he were a prophet from God, then he would surely know she's a sinner. What is this supposed man of God doing, allowing the likes of her to touch him? Now, this is the conversation that is happening where? It's happening here, inside of Simon's mind. This is what he's thinking, saying to himself. Now, y'all probably have never done this. But have you ever had a critical thought about someone else kind of come and float through your mind? And maybe those thoughts do a little bit more than just float by. Maybe they stay around for a little bit. You think on them for a while. See, I'd imagine that Simon was paying little attention to those thoughts that were floating around in his head. They were just in his head. No one saw them. He had learned how to plaster a smile on his face, look good on the outside while on the inside he was ripping someone to shreds. He presents as cool and collected in his appearance. So who cares what's going on inside of his mind? But that all changes. When Jesus turns to him and answers the very question that's in his mind, imagine that you're thinking something. Jesus turns to you and he answers the question that's in it. And how quickly Simon learns that there's no secrets with Jesus. There's no secrets with Jesus. Everyone was aware of the sin of the woman of the city. In a way, her life was an open book. People knew she was a sinner. That's a sinner over there. There. There was no hiding or denying the life she lived. She was a hot mess. She knew it and everyone else knew it as well. You know, in life, there are people whose transgressions are just out in the open for everyone to see. Their fights happen on the front porch and their missteps happen in the public eye. They're not necessarily proud of their lives. They're just unable or unwilling to keep it all under wraps. So, it, it, so it's all out there for everyone to see. Everyone sees it. Recently, I was listening to a really interesting interview with a guy by the name of Alexander Butterfield. Alexander Butterfield was President Nixon's aide. He was one of his like top aides. And he was the first one to report back to say, hey, there are secret tapes about President Nixon that y'all need to know about. Those tapes are the ones that led eventually to Nixon's impeachment. And reflecting back on Nixon, this is what Butterfield said. He said Nixon was a very controlled person. He had a lot of hatred and resentment toward people, but he kept that quite contained. What Butterfield was saying of Nixon is that Nixon had mastered the art of concealment. He was a master concealer. When my girls were little, 
(laughs) They loved the movie Frozen. And there's a part in the movie Frozen when Elsa's freezing powers begin to grow out of control. Now, Elsa had like this like weird thing that like ice or something shot out of her hands. And as it was beginning to grow out of control, her dad said, you know what? We need to lock up the gates. We need to shut her everything in and we need to conceal, hide so that nobody sees your power. And then a little bit later on in the movie, maybe like a couple of minutes, Elsa kind of reflecting on this life of this sheltered life. She sings these words. She says, conceal, don't feel, put on a show, make one wrong move and everyone will know. For Simon the Pharisee, the name of his game was concealment. Present with a smile, carry on as if everything is okay. All the while his insides rage with self-serving and demeaning thoughts. These thoughts are followed with subtle acts of passive aggression. He intentionally snubbed Jesus and he inwardly fumed with judgment at the woman who was a sinner. And to Simon, he must have thought it all doesn't matter anyways, because it's all happening on the inside. It's all just going on right here, up here. But soon, in a moment, he realizes there's no secrets with Jesus. See, each of us live somewhere between these two poles of concealment and wildly open lives. For some of us, our lives are open books. Things just flow from us almost stream of conscious like. The good, the bad, and the ugly is all there for the world to see. In such cases, just a little advice here if you're one of those people, a little restraint would be nice. There's some things that we just don't need to know about. Keep it to yourself. It'll be good. All right. On the other end of it, There's the button-down life, the one who resonates more with Princess Elsa. Conceal, don't feel, put on a show, make one wrong move, and everyone will know. So they keep their hurt, their pain, their jealousy, all locked up on the inside of them, all bottled up. No one must ever know what is happening on the inside. And in the private space, then comes Jesus. There's no secrets with him. He answers the very question that Simon asked inside of his mind. Isn't that incredible? Now, here's the deal. You can be real with Jesus after all he already knows. Carrying on as if nothing is wrong is like trying to deny that you went back for seconds to the Thanksgiving dessert table. (laughs) Everybody saw it. We all know it. Just own it. So the Bible calls us to confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We share with him our hopes, our dreams, our fears, and our pains with certainty that he cares and that he listens to us. All right, we're walking through a story. So let's uh, pick back up in verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus explains to Simon that the woman's extravagant response has everything to do with this thing called forgiveness. He says, imagine there's two people. One owes $50, the other $500. The money lender lets both of them off the hook. Who will be more grateful? Simon responds, the one who owed more money, of course. It was obvious to all. The sinful woman stood in the need of forgiveness. While Simon the Pharisee saw himself in a pretty good light. So the woman in need of a savior finds herself at Jesus's feet. While Simon is trying to figure out how to get his party back on track. Simon's self-righteousness blinded him to his own need for forgiveness. I am certainly not a wicked, as wicked as that woman, Simon thought to himself. And there is where Simon was dead wrong. He had invested his life in looking the part. He was the one, after all, who was having Jesus over for, the, for dinner. He was the one hosting Jesus, Right? All of this blinded him to his very, the very fact that he needed a savior to begin with. His refusal to reckon with his own issues on the inside makes him fail to see that he is bankrupt before God. And so there he is. I have Jesus over for dinner and this thing is not turning out the way that he thought it would. Now here's the twist in the story. See, Simon actually finds out very quickly that he's on the outside looking in. Yes, it's at his own house. Yes, this party is his. He threw it. He sent out the invitations. These are his guests. And yet in his own house, he stands as a stranger. He's the now, the one who is peering through the window admiring the scene, but not included in any of it. Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. There's a rumbling at the table. Who is this to forgive sins? The woman stands justified before God while Simon is left trying to figure out like what is going on. See, Simon wanted to entertain a prophet, but in the end he fails to embrace the savior. And that's a big issue. So what do you do when you find that the world you so carefully create, 
crafted ends up failing you. You thought you were playing the system. You really thought you were gaming this thing. You thought you had it all figured out. You thought you had Jesus working for you. You took the pieces of his life, his teaching, the things that you really liked, agreed with, and you discarded the rest. Around those things, you've put together a comfortable life. Then at some point, you realize that the little life that you created, that Jesus isn't in it at all. And now you find yourself on the outside looking in. And it turns out that Simon wasn't a host at all. You see, hosting is a reciprocal transaction where there is an expectation for both the guest and the host. The host is to extend a genuine greeting. There's supposed to be a kiss. There's supposed to be the washing of the feet, the, no- the anointing of the feet. And then in response, the, the guest is to give back a heartfelt response. The host then is expected to receive from the guest And Simon failed to both greet Jesus and receive the forgiveness of his sins. So, if we step back a little bit further, we will actually begin to realize that, yes, Simon's not the host. And the sinful woman, well, she's not actually the host either. Really, the host of the whole thing is Jesus. And this actually happens to be true often in scripture where it looks like Jesus is just the guest. He's just the one that's showing up to the party. He's just the one that's kind of participating in the events. But as we get to the end of it, we realize that it's always Jesus standing there, extending the invitation. Jesus always sits and stands as the, guest, as the host Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The invitation stands. Jesus welcomes us. He stands beckoning us. Yes, what we just read was a historical fact, one that has been scrutinized through the ages and still stands up. But it is not a dead historical thing. What we're talking about is a present day reality. See, Jesus stands in the present day. He stands currently now standing, knocking, welcoming, inviting. And how are we to respond? Is it a one-time response to an altar? Is it a one-time like, yes, Jesus, I'm in with you? Or is it this lifetime response? Is it once? Is it twice? Or is it always? Is it always that we find ourselves at the feet of our Savior? Luke tells another story about a wedding feast that's happening. And as Luke is telling the story, at the end of it, he says this. He says, those who are humble will see God. So if you want to see God, you humble yourself before God. And that's really the invitation here. It's not the invitation just to some, but it's the invitation to all. And even today, this morning, as I was thinking and just praying through this passage, I was like, Jesus, I want to wipe your feet. I want to wipe your feet. 
Like, yes, this here, like, I want this to be somehow a form of me wiping your feet. But I want to always be wiping your feet. Jesus, I want to be found like that woman. Most likely this wasn't her first encounter with him. Most likely she already knew Jesus, had an experience with him. And she was coming back and falling again at the feet of her savior. She was humbling herself before her savior because she was much forgiven. And so we humble ourselves, not just once, but over and over and over again. Let's pray. And so God, what's the response to a savior? What's the adequate, appropriate response to a savior who has touched and changed our lives? Who has died for us and forgiven us? It's time and time again, coming back to the feet of our savior. Lord, right now, I pray that you will move in us and that you will move among us. Lord, there's a lot of different different people here, Lord, that are in a lot of different spots. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to them. And Lord, I appreciate this opportunity. And Lord, I pray that you will bless this church and bless this leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.